What up, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfon, in studio with co-host Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? Not too much, man. Uh, you crossed an item off of your bucket list recently. I um, did. Yeah, how was that? It was cool. I went to watch a Notre Dame home football game. Uh, definitely a wild and interesting and very unique atmosphere if you're not um, kind of used to the American college football scene. Did you tailgate? Uh, I did tailgate. Uh, that was, let's leave that for off the air. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, no, it was a good time. Um, very different than an NBA experience, as I expected. Like, I had done the NFL thing before, uh, with tailgate and everything, but definitely a different atmosphere for college. Well, you know, we're all kind of trying to find ways to kill time uh, until the season really gets going. We're still sort of in the dog days here, and really, a- until training camp starts, uh, it's just going to be a bit of a, a dead pocket, and uh, we're going to use that time to start to ramp up our preseason coverage and, and look ahead to 2019-20. So something Cash and I have been doing, just to give you a little tease, is we've been working on a series called Best Case, Worst Case, where we look at all 30 teams and try and figure out what their best case scenario is going to be for the coming season and what their worst case scenario might look like. And in the spirit of that exercise, we wanted to get together today and talk about the teams that we've had the hardest time kind of pegging and the teams that have the widest range of potential outcomes. So Cash and I have each come in with five teams that we think have you know, the highest potential variance for this coming season. And we're just going to compare and talk about those teams and why they might succeed and why they might flop. So I'll throw it over to you, Cash. Who is the first team on your list that you think has the widest range of outcomes? Uh, not in necessarily any particular order, but I'm going to throw the, the Brooklyn Nets out there as a starting point. Okay, interesting. Uh, I think they, not I think, they made the biggest splash by far, at least in the Eastern Conference. Yeah. For me, I, I guess I, I see this team as having like a high floor and not that high of a ceiling, but is your... Are you factoring Kevin Durant into this? No, and, and I'm not. And, and I still think it's a wide range of outcomes because I actually don't think the floor is that high. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I like the magic they kind of captured last season. And I, you know, I, I was a big believer in what Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson are building there. So it's not like I think they're all of a sudden going to fall off a cliff with Kyrie Irving there leading the charge. But, I mean, we've got some evidence to support the fact that Kyrie Irving is not the greatest locker room leader. Kevin Durant will not be there yet. Um, they've got similar, somewhat similar to you know what Boston had going into last year. They've got some young guys who probably think they've already proven themselves and should be ready to take a next step and maybe get some increased responsibility. Kyrie Irving being there is at least going to take a little bit of that away. Mm-hmm. I still think they're a playoff team, but I do think there is a kind of worst case scenario floor there where they're like a middling, if maybe not even 500 team. And at the same time, I also believe in their talent enough that if everything broke right, and maybe some of the other East quasi-contenders don't take advantage of it, they could also be the third best team in the East and have a shot at the East Finals. So to me, that's a pretty damn wide range. I'm pegging this team as anywhere from like a 39-win team to like a low 50s and Eastern Conference finalist. Yeah, I I don't know if I see them as a potential Eastern Conference finalist. I think that might be a bridge too far. Um, but, you know, the... The low end, I can definitely see. I can see them being, you know, hovering around 500 and 
potentially even being a first round out. I guess the reason I see them as having a high floor is like, look around the East. Is there a better backcourt in the Eastern Conference than what the Nets have? Probably not. You know, between Probably Kyrie, not. Levert, and Dinwiddie, I think that's that's the best backcourt. And like, I, I get all the concerns with Kyrie and the way that he can kind of blow up a locker room. At the same time, I feel like the change of scenery historically has been pretty good for him. And like his first season in Boston, at least the way that season started, he was competing at both ends of the floor. He was saying all the right things. He was getting along with his teammates. And I think having Durant there as potentially like a moderating influence might help that process along. I think on the court maybe is where you might get into some more issues because, you know, the Nets have thrived the past couple of years on this like team concept where it's, it's systematized and Kyrie sort of exists outside of a system. He hews more toward individualism as a player and how's that going to jive with Kenny Atkinson and his system and the rest of the players on this team that were there last year and saw what that system was capable of. How how is it going to be with him and Levert in the backcourt and them sharing on-ball responsibilities? Because I think, you know, the path towards stardom for Levert involves him playing on the ball a lot. That's where I think he showed the most growth last season was as a guy who could orchestrate the pick and roll and who could get super creative and shifty with the ball in his hands. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic. And, you know, the front court, I guess, is still an area of weakness and, like, they don't have a ton of good defensive wings. Uh, I don't really know how it's going to work with Jared Allen and DeAndre Jordan. Like, they're sort of similar players, I guess. So, you know, subbing one out for the other won't have too much of an effect, I guess, on the way that the Nets play. I just think that Allen is better at this point in time. And, like, if if he's blocked by Jordan, if Jordan's, like, taking up a bunch of his playing time because he just got paid and because he's friends with Kyrie and Durant, then that could be problematic as well. Yeah, and that's what that deal was. I mean, like, I don't think we had to have been in the room to know that that's a lot of what that deal was. DeAndre Jordan is boys with Kevin Durant especially and Kyrie Irving as well, and they probably felt like they were throwing those guys a bone. I don't know if it was actually like a package deal thing where they mm-hmm. said, oh, give DeAndre some money and we're for sure there. Probably not that far, but it clearly seemed like something that they were trying to keep those guys happy, which, fine. You know, if it, if it goes hand-in-hand hand with getting those two transcendent stars, then... But we've both been on this page from the beginning. Like, if, if it also means that an inferior, older, like, lower ceiling for the future player is now going to start stealing minutes from Jared Allen because of that friendship, that's a problem. And... And I really don't see any other way it can go because you're not going to give DeAndre Jordan a four-year contract and then not play him, yeah. right? And you can't play them together. And that's the thing that really confused me. Like, I get it if you felt like you needed to bring DeAndre in to appease Durant and Kyrie, but did you have to give him four years? Did you have to give him $40 million? Like, who are you bidding against? Yeah, they're gonna, DeAndre Jordan's under contract through 2023. DeAndre Jordan Jordan and Karis LeVert are the only two players on this team with guaranteed money in 2023. Think about that. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, I guess, I don't know. My, my, my big concern with the Nets is like their, their three and four situation, the forward spots. I just don't, there isn't a whole lot of stability there. And I, Torian Prince, I guess, is a guy who could stabilize the wing, but... I don't know. He hasn't shown a whole lot defensively to make me think that he's going to be like a night-to-night number one wing stopper. 
again, I guess Levert could sort of fill that role because he does have some size and has shown some defensive chops in the past. But I feel like the lack of perimeter defense is maybe going to put a whole lot of pressure on the back line. And I guess we'll see what Jared Allen is made of. And can he continue on his sort of upward trajectory? Like, he, to me, is a guy who can basically grow into Clint Capella. I think he needs to, like, fill out his frame and get a little bit stronger. But the tools are all there. So I would prefer to see him, you know, get more opportunities to spread his wings. And especially just because this year does seem more like a stopgap than anything, even if they are, you know, reasonably competitive, can make it to the second round. I think this year should be more about growth than it is about competing in the here and now, which is, you know, all the more reason to give Allen as many opportunities as possible. Uh, and the last though, too, I know, you know, I agree with you that they, they have the strongest backcourt in the East when healthy. I'll also add that between Kyrie Irving, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Karis Levert, if you just look at the last three years, which is covers Karis Levert's yeah. NBA career, so you're looking at nine combined seasons between the three of them, they've combined for two 70-game seasons. So it's pretty, you know, a reliable assumption that, like, those three guys are going to combine to miss, like, 35 to 40 games and maybe more if you actually look at their history. Yeah. And, and that could be a problem, especially when, as you mentioned, there is not... There isn't much front court depth. Like if one or two of those guys go down, you could have a situation where it's one guy in the backcourt trying to carry a very subpar team. Yeah, I guess I'd just say that's the benefit of having three of those guys. True. Whereas, you know, if one of them goes down, I think any two of those guys can play together really effectively. Um, and I'll also say I forgot about Garrett Temple, who is, you know, a, a really solid perimeter defender that they picked up in the offseason. That was like a really nice under the radar. Yeah, it was a solid piece of business. So. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I I see them as having a pretty high floor, and I just don't I don't think the ceiling is necessarily there. Like I can see them hitting fifty wins, but can I see them getting to the conference finals? I don't think so. I just don't know that the top end talent is there without Durant. So that's where I'm at with the Nets. My top team in terms of variance and you know the the range of outcomes is the Lakers. I don't. I, I guess I just like changed my mind about this a lot. But sometimes I look at it and I'm like, it's LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Like, are we overthinking this? Is that not the best one-two combo in the league by a significant margin? And I know, like the rest of the roster around them doesn't fit particularly well. But there are some guys who complement them really well. And I'm thinking mostly of Danny Green. And if you have basically the best creator in the league playing alongside the best finisher in the league. I mean, that to me is a recipe for like a top three offense. And if the defense can just tread water and those guys can stay healthy, this feels like a team that can like separate itself from the pack in the West and just potentially go and win a title. Yeah. I I think like 2010-ish, 2011-ish Dwayne Wade was probably still the best teammate LeBron's ever had. Mm -hmm. But I think... 2019 Anthony Davis is the best fitting star teammate LeBron James ever had and that's a pretty scary thought I know LeBron's not necessarily in his prime anymore we've you know we spent last week talking about some of the durability issues that might pop up as he gets older and this season that's where we get into the variability exactly but having said that LeBron James last year in what almost everyone agrees was a down year averaged what 27 8 and 8 Mm -hmm. and you partner that with Anthony freaking Davis in his prime like yeah of course the question is you know are those two guys going to be on the court together a lot this season. And if one of them gets hurt, they're, they're 
it, things can get dicey, especially if it's LeBron that gets hurt, because we've seen what it looks like when Anthony Davis plays with a man roster. Like, it's very hard for big men in the modern age to kind of carry a team no matter how good they are. They just don't affect, like, every possession, especially in the offensive end, the way a guy like LeBron would. Having said that, I just... I, it's weird to say because he, he just missed the playoffs last year, but it's so hard for me to think that LeBron James, after missing the playoffs, isn't going to come out and just take a blowtorch to the league this year, especially with perhaps the best teammate he's ever had. Right. So that's, you know, if we're talking about their upside, their high-end projection, it's like those guys, stay, those guys each play 75-plus games. The chemistry clicks right away. LeBron is the player he was two seasons ago rather than the one he was last year. Danny Green proves a perfect compliment. You know, you have a LeBron James, Anthony Davis pick and roll, and Danny Green spotting up. Already, you're in pretty good shape at the offensive end of the floor. And then defensively, they just sort of managed to scrape by because LeBron shows a little bit more engagement at that end of the floor. Davis patrols the back end, and you get enough perimeter defense there between Green, KCP, Avery Bradley, maybe even Rondo gives you something. And, you know, if you're looking at having a league average or maybe even slightly above league average defense and potentially the number one offense in all of basketball, I mean, that's a high 50s win team. And then this, to me, looks like a potentially devastating playoff team and one that could run roughshod over the more balanced but less top-heavy teams in the West. So I definitely see this team as having championship upside if everything goes right. And that's, again, why they are, to me, the highest variance team, because I think the bottom could also fall out to the so, extent that, that things go very wrong. So what is the floor, then, to you for this team? Like, is it missing the playoffs? Well, and all if, right. So any serious injury to LeBron or Davis sinks this team. And, yeah, if one of those guys gets hurt, they miss the playoffs to me. Like, how... I don't see a path to them being competitive if one of those guys misses an extended period of time. Can you? No, but what I would what I would say to that is, especially like given how often we've spoken about, you know, how wide open this season is, there's no super team, blah, blah, blah. Could you not make that argument for many teams? Yeah, I'm not exactly. saying every team, but like no, no. Denver is a perfect example. Yeah. I don't know if they're on your list. They're not on mine as a high variance team. I think they're a pretty solid, like this is what they are team. Right. But it's like, well, if Jokic gets a season-ending injury, well, then they're not. They're going to win like no, no, no. 34 I know, games. I know, I know. And that's why I don't want to throw like season-ending injury out there right. because it's like, yeah, that could happen to any team. I do think it's different, though, because take a team like Denver, where they have depth at every position. Really, Jokic is the only guy that they can't afford to lose for an extended stretch, and Jokic doesn't really have a history of injuries, whereas LeBron is coming off a season where he played 55 games, and he's going to turn 35 this year, and Anthony Davis has a long injury history. So I think precedent does factor into it, where if you're talking about what's realistic, you know, is it realistic that LeBron and AD both play 75-plus games? I'm not sure it is at this point. Whereas if I'm looking at Jokic, is it realistic that he plays 75-plus games? Yeah. So there's a difference there. Um, but I think you're right. So let's, let's throw out like a season-ending injury to either one of those guys. Let's say they're both reasonably healthy and play something to the tune of like 65 to 72 games. Right, like high 60s, low 70s. Yeah. I still think there's a chance that this is the year LeBron... I won't say breaks down. I think, you know, he still could very well be a top five player, certainly top 10 player, but are there just too many miles on that body right now to be a, the, the kind of consistent night to night force that he has been? And, and come playoff time, does he still have that gear that he can ratchet it up to where he actually does start competing at the defensive end and where 
he can just basically take over possessions down the stretch. I'm a little worried about the lack of secondary creation, the lack of competent guard play, and just the strain that all of that is going to put on both of these guys' bodies. And I think... I don't think they can miss the playoffs if both these guys make it through the, the, the season relatively healthy, but could I see them winding up kind of like mid-40s wins and maybe getting a low seed, pulling a bad matchup in the first round and not making it through to the second? I kind of can. See, I, th- I think the LeBron breakdown is coming next year mm-hmm. because of how ham I think he's going this year. <laughs> like, I, I think we're in for like a special like maybe MVP and championship season from LeBron. Wow. And then that's just like not the end where like he's going to be a nobody next year, but mm-hmm. it'll kind of be like all right, now it's the end of his prime. He just left everything out there for this season and cuz I mean if it's not this year, then I agree with you. Like I, it, the numbers are adding up here. Yeah. One thing that I think is possible, like LeBron has never averaged double digit assists before. I feel like that's on the table for him this season just because the the number two guys that he's played with in the past, like you, you think about Kyrie and Wade. A lot of self-creation. Exactly. And Davis can do a bit of self-creation, but he's more so, I think, a dependent scorer. And I feel like LeBron could pull like six or seven assists a night just throwing lobs to AD. I think he could definitely rack up like 10 or 11 assists per game. Maybe take his foot off the gas a bit in terms of doing the scoring himself. And maybe he's down to like 22, 23 points a game, but he's operating more as a point guard because like we've said many times, the point guard play on this team outside of what LeBron's going to give them is sketchy at best. Until April when playoff Rondo shows up. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) I don't know if that guy exists anymore. That's what you said uh, before that Portland series uh, a year and a half ago. Yeah, well. But that was also a year and a half ago. Exactly. Um, Anyway, so, yeah, I I see them as having a huge range of outcomes. And and one of them is absolutely just high 50s wins, and and they run roughshod over the playoff field, and they they win a championship. And another one is they just kind of slog through the season and lose in the first round. I really, I, I think that is possible, and... If that happens, and if we get to the end of the season, and Anthony Davis is an unrestricted free agent, and he is looking at a roster with a broken-down LeBron James and very little young talent and not many means of improving in the near future, he's going to have a not particularly easy decision to make. Yeah, it's, not, it's all right. The Lakers didn't give up much for him. <laughs> um, all right, who's next on your list? I'm taking it back to the East. Speaking of championships... The defending champion Toronto Raptors. I don't know if they were on your list. They were on my list as well. You talk about a wide range of outcomes. So, I think the Bucs and the Sixers are clearly better than the Raptors on paper going into the season. Yeah. I also believe that I need to see what Pascal Siakam looks like in a primary role. I need to see what Kyle Lowry looks like going into a season where he knows he has to be a little more of a finisher maybe again. I want to see if Marcus Gasol can be the guy that he was literally like 10 months ago when he was averaging 17 a game for the Grizzlies. Or like a few days ago when he was scoring 33 right? in the for double Spain overtime the, yeah. game. Um, what does OG Ananobi look like given the fact that a year ago there was a lot of people and not just like people like us or like writers, podcasts, whatever. The, People that you'd read about, like scouts, takes, whatever, that thought OG Anunoby was primed for a bigger breakout year than Pascal Siakam was. We know how that turned out. So there are a lot of ifs there. Um, and this team's going to, I think, really sorely lack the shooting of guys like Danny Green and even Kawhi Leonard. 
But I think if enough of those questions are answered uh, in a positive way for the Raptors, if Pascal Siakam takes another leap and is a, you know, bonafide all-star, borderline, like, all-NBA talent, which I don't think is out of the realm of possibility, given the leaps he's already taken. If Kyle Lowry, you know, I don't think Kyle Lowry has to be what he was three years ago, but if Kyle Lowry's even still a borderline all-star with Pascal Siakam playing like that and all the kind of pieces around them just play up to their capabilities, right? Marc Gasol, even Serge Ibaka, like all these guys. Fred Van Vliet in a, trying to get another contract. I do think there is a ceiling there where this team is back in the conference finals. And I don't know, like, I, I don't think it's that insane to think that this team could make a run to the finals. They do not, they, to me, they have no chance in hell of winning a championship this season. But I do think there is like a greater than 1% chance that they could get back to the finals. I also think if Pascal Siakam's not ready for a primary role, if Kyle Lowry is going to start showing the signs of aging even more, if Marcus Gasol offensively is more the guy we saw in the back half of the season than he was at the beginning of the season, if OJ Ananobi isn't ready to take that step, this might also be like a 40 and 42 seven seed that loses in five games in the yeah. first round. And again, if, if this shows about a wide range of outcomes, I just gave you two scenarios where I think one, one team could make the finals, one team could win 40 games. Yeah, I, I, see it, I see them as having a similar range of outcomes. I don't think they have finals upside, at least not without making an in-season trade of some magnitude. <laughs> Bradley Beal. I don't want to rehash this, but I don't think they have the pieces to get that deal done without throwing Siakam in the deal, which they're not going to do. So I don't see it. But maybe there's another guy that they could target that would really help. Uh, I don't I don't see them as having that kind of upside. I, I think the downside could be even lower than what you described. Wow. Because if, if they're a, on pace to be a 40 and 42 team, I think they're going to start selling off parts. Like I, the, They will explore Lowry's trade market. They will explore Gasol's trade market. As much as you know, we've talked about what this season means to them and how they want to go out and defend this title in a spirited way and make it mean something, I just don't see the end game with them sort of playing out the string on you know what's bound to be a first-round exit if that's where they're at. I don't think Masai Ujiri is the type to say, all right, you know, we'll give it one more kick of the can with a, a futile playoff run. I think if they are sub-500 at the trade deadline, they're going to look to move those guys. And that's where I think the bottom could really fall out, where they wind up in like the 30s and wins and entirely out of the playoff picture. So I think that's on the table. What do you think their ceiling is? I think they could get into the range of like 52 to 55 wins. Their defense, to me, is going to be spectacular. You know, that starts with Gasol in the middle, but you also have Siakam, you know, one of the most versatile defensive players in the league. You have OG on the wing, big, strong dude who can move his feet and has great hands and like a really nice wingspan. You have... Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, an underrated pickup to me, who is one of the better one-on-one -on -one defenders at the wing position in the league. Super strong um, and just, like, doesn't really ever get beat off the dribble cleanly. Stanley Johnson, who... And, I mean, the thing with Rondé and Stanley Johnson both is, like, is their offense going to play to the point that they get enough minutes for their defense to really matter? But just, like, look up and down this roster. How many minus defenders are on this roster? In terms of the actual rotation, guys, I'm thinking zero. Zero. Yeah. Zero. So that, to me, is a recipe for a top five defense. And I'm thinking the offensive end looks kind of sketchy, but Kyle Lowry has a long history of just making shit work at that end of the floor. I mean, the Raptors have been top 10 for six years in a row at the offensive end. And 
obviously last year there was a ton more offensive talent on this team than there is now, but you look at what the team looked like, I don't know, three, four years ago, and on paper, those were not teams that ought to have been top 10 offensively. And I know that was a different Kyle Lowry, but the guy is still so smart and so effective at running an offense, even if he's not the one who is putting up points, even if his pull-up jumper isn't what it was a couple of years ago. His ability to orchestrate an offense, his ability to deliver that pocket pass on time and on target every single time and like set Serge Ibaka up for like short roll jumpers and find guys in the corner and find Siakam on the break with those hit-ahead passes. Like everything he does is engineered toward having an efficient offense. And I think they're going to fall off. I actually don't expect them to finish in the top 10 this year, but like could they be above average? And you know, somewhere in the 12, 13, 14 range? Yeah, and you pair that with an elite defense. Yeah, they could easily top 50 wins if they stay healthy. And I do think that Siakam has another leap in him. Whether that comes this year is the question to me because this could be a tough transition for him, you know, figuring out how to be that number one guy every night when defenses are scheming for you. He hasn't had to deal with that yet. I think the playoffs this past year were a really good learning experience for him in that way because you had teams throwing different looks at him. He's being guarded by the likes of Joel Embiid and Giannis Antetokounmpo, guys who are sagging Dream off on him green. and just waiting for him at the rim. So he's already gotten an education in that regard, and uh, it's not going to shock him, I guess, to see like the other team's number one defensive option Ding him up every night. But like the idea of a team's defensive scheme being geared towards stopping him is something that's going to be new, and I feel like his efficiency might tail off a lot. So... I mean, there, there's a lot of downside offensively. Like, there's just not a lot of shooting on this team. And there's not a lot of self-creation on this team. Like, Siakam is really one of the only guys who you look at and think that he can reliably create for himself, right? Like, Lowry at this point in his career, hopefully the pull-up jump shot is still there to some extent. But, like, as far as a guy who's going to be able to create contact, get downhill and get to the rim, that guy hasn't really been there for the last couple of seasons. He's been really reliant on the three-pointer the last couple of years. And, you know, for Gasol, like, his post-game has completely evaporated. And then you look at guys on the wing, like Norm Powell and OG Ananobi, who are more or less spot-up shooters and or straight-line drivers, not guys who are doing a whole lot of creative stuff with the ball. Van Vliet, maybe that's the guy who you're like, if he can take a step gets to the point where he is the sort of pull-up shooter that Lowry has been in the past, if that happens, maybe you're talking about the Raptors having a top-10 offense. Yeah. So, okay, last Raptors question then for you is, in the best-case scenario in your mind, like if if all the the right things break right, and they are, I think you mentioned like 52-ish wins and like a high-end, like low to mid-50s in wins, do you think that version of this year's Raptors, without a move being made, has any chance to beat either of Philly or Milwaukee in a seven-game series? Because I think that version does, especially Philly. Uh-huh. Um, I, I have a tough time seeing them beating Milwaukee Agreed. just because I, they still have the goods, I think, to do a solid job on Giannis, but are they going to be able to scratch out enough points to score on what I expect to be a really good defense once again? With Philly, I mean, I guess it's kind of the same issue. I don't really have any questions about their ability to defend Philadelphia whose offense we've talked about and I'm really curious to see how it works like they can absolutely match up and we've seen teams that are dependent on a post scorer 
going up against Marc Gasol are going to struggle. And the Sixers, with their sort of lack of shooting and lack of primary Lack of creation, Jimmy Butler. Yeah, like they, I think they would have a tough time scoring on this Raptors defense. But would the Raptors be able to score on the Sixers? I feel like if that was a, a playoff series, we'd see a lot of like 87 yeah. to 85 type of games. I was going to say Raptors, Sixers, 2020 playoff series might be like Pacers, Pistons, <laughs> or like Pistons, Nets of the early 2000s. Yeah. I don't know if it would get quite to that level. Obviously, like there'd still be like a lot more three-point shooting yeah. and a lot more pace. We wouldn't see... I, I think there were some like games that ended with both teams in the 60s. Yeah, in high those, 60s. Low in 70s. those Pacers-Pistons series and uh, Pistons-Nets series. But like, I think it would be a, a rock fight. And I think there's a universe in which the Raptors could win that series. I think I'd put it at like a pretty low-end probability outcome, like 15 or 20%. I just think there's so much more talent on Philly and, and Milwaukee as well. So... I, I could see it happening, and I guess I wouldn't be totally blown away, but it, it's not what I expect. Yeah, but I, I guess that's kind of my point. Like, the fact that we're even saying, or you're even saying, you'd peg it as a 15 to 20% chance they could beat one of the top two teams in the conference. Mm -hmm. But, oh, by the way, they there's also a path where they win, like, 35 games. Like, to me, they might act, the defending champions might actually have the widest range of outcomes this season. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Who's your um, next team? I got the Mavs. They nice. I, they are on my list. Yeah. yeah. So their upside is really intriguing because if Porzingis comes back, and this is like the biggest question I think by far, um, but if Porzingis comes back and is the guy that he was when he got injured, and that is a huge if. Right, because he hasn't been on the court in what eighteen months. We'll be probably we'll, we'll be. No, 20. I, think, I think it's more. I think I saw like by the time the season tips off, it's like over six hundred days. Like it's right. It's so an almost insane. almost two years yeah. since he has played an NBA game. So a big if, but let's say you know he's he's fully recovered and he's got all of his bounce and athleticism back because that is a big part of his game. And his mobility, like the way that he can move at his size. I mean, that season with the Knicks before he got hurt, 22.7 points a game, 2.4 blocks per game. He shot 39.5% from three. Elite rim protection numbers. You put that guy next to Doncic, and you know I think you're baking in probably some kind of a jump from Doncic as well. And I think that's another big question, right? Like how much better can he get? Do you see him as more of a guy who might hit a sophomore slump or at least stagnate in year two? Or do you think he's just going to sort of take off? Because I think he's too smart to hit that slump. I think he's too cerebral of a player. Like, you just watch him run a pick and run. Like, he just figures things out on the fly. Mm -hmm. And I, I find it hard to believe, like, that guy who's playing, been playing pro basketball since he was, like, six years old right, and running pick and roll since he was two years old. I, I find it hard to believe that that guy that we saw, you know, last season basically have maybe he slumped for a week, but for the most part, he just continued to figure things out as a teenager in the NBA. Yeah. I think that guy will figure it out. 
you know, and I'm not saying he's going to jump to like 25, 8, and 8, but I don't think he's taking a step back. I think I think it's an upwards trajectory barring mm-hmm. injury for him. Yeah, I mean, is he like, can he work on his body? Like, sure. get, you know, get in better shape and get maybe a little bit quicker. I think he can do those things, but I, I also think there are some sort of innate physical limitations there that might prevent him from following a traditional trajectory that's fair that the kind of rookie that he was might otherwise follow so I guess there's that to consider but like the great thing about having Porzingis next to him is Porzingis is basically as effective popping as he is rolling and basically giving Doncic those options where you know Doncic I guess doesn't put a ton of pressure on the rim as a driver so maybe he's not an ideal ball handler to play alongside Porzingis in the pick and roll but like he has the threat of that step back to sort of magnetize a defense in his direction. You throw in a Porzingis, you know, a seven foot three guy who can leap out the gym as well, or I guess we'll see if he can still do that. But like, if he's the same guy he was, then suddenly like you put the defense in a real bind and you have defenders lurching in from the corners, trying to tag. Doncic has the ability to sling those pinpoint passes to the corners to open shooters. And I guess maybe... Like, if they had managed to get Danny Green, I would feel so much better about where they were at. But their situation on the wing is kind of tenuous. So that's part of where I see the downside, right? And if Porzingis isn't that guy, if he needs to be eased back up to to game shape or just doesn't really have the lateral quickness or the hops that he had before, if his jump shot isn't quite at the same level, if Doncic hits a bit of a wall in a sophomore season... I could see this team falling down to like 12th or 13th in the West. But they if were 14th ever, last season. Were they 14th or were they... They were 14th. 14th, yeah. But There's the, a thir- three-way tie for 12th with the Grizzlies and right. the Pelicans. 33 and 49? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's not typically the record you would see with right. a 14th ranked team. But yeah, I could see them being 12th to 13th. I could also see them being, honestly, like 5th, 6th, if everything goes right. I just think that, you know, the combination of Doncic and Porzingis has a chance to be really devastating. Yeah, I think I think whatever it is that we agree is the upside for those two players just this season mm-hmm. with no super team out there. I think even though there's like kind of a lack of a third option, lack of wing depth around them, if those two guys are healthy and hit the upside we both envision for them this season, like that's a team that can flirt with 50 wins. And like you mentioned, like be in contention for like maybe home court in the first round. If Porzingis isn't what we think you know, or isn't what we last saw of him. If he takes a few months to round into form, if Doncic does take a step back, if that depth does prove fatal, this team could also win like 28 games. Seriously, they could be really bad. Right. And I guess you could just call Doncic a wing and maybe he he's going to play on the ball a bunch, obviously, right. but maybe you can have him play off the ball. Yeah. And you have, got, you have DeLon Wright, uh, you have Jalen Brunson, like you have guys who are sort of capable of running the offense. And maybe put Doncic in, uh, you know, more of a position to cut, to spot up, to be a screener. I think there are a lot of different ways they can use him. Like, his versatility is part of what makes him so exciting. I- I'm just really interested to see what this team looks like. I think they're one of the more fascinating teams. And, again, things could go south for them for a lot of different reasons. But if everything clicks, like, I think they have a chance to be a factor in the West. All right, I'll, uh, I'll go next. I'm not going to say the Pacers because I have a feeling you want to talk about the Pacers if yeah. I know you at all. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the Oklahoma City Thunder. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I, they're on my list as well. It, I kind of struggled with putting them on the list because I guess in fair, like it, it's it, not that interesting. To it's talk not, about. and also if we're talking about wide ranges, like I, I don't think their ceiling's actually that high. It's not mm-hmm. like I think they're a playoff contender if they're healthy, but I just think their season can go in two vastly different ways. Like the upside isn't contender, but the upside is like Chris Paul and Danilo Gallinari and even Steven Adams. Like you have one hell of an offense here. Yeah. Like. Chris Paul isn't what he used to be, but there are still elite offensive skills in there, especially playmaking-wise. Danilo Gallinari was, I believe, in terms of like pure uh, individual efficiency last season, two guys scored more efficiently than him. Three, sorry. Their names were LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Steph Curry. Like Danilo Gallinari, for his defensive limitations, for his durability issues unbelievably efficient offensive player. So there is a path to like an elite offense in that lineup. No, they don't have depth. Like, their bench isn't good. Um, very, very bad. Right? They're, there is a path here for this team to completely fall apart, like, out of the gate, be very bad, mm-hmm. for them to trade Chris Paul very quickly, and for them to be, like, a 17-65 and 65 team. Like, that. that's a <laughs> realistic floor for this team. Yeah. Again, if the offense kind of carries them, and we've seen plenty of examples of an elite offense carrying a team to at least playoff contention. And if that's the case, and for whatever reason they don't trade Chris Paul and that rowdy OKC fan base gets behind them, then there's like this potential for this team to kind of be this really easy to root for, kind of underdog, scrappy, fun, 42-48 and 48 seed. And again, I, I realize that if we're going by the traditional sense of wide ranges, like it, it's not a crazy range, but I think it's, it's still a fascinating range, and I think it's worth talking about them. Yeah, I mean... The- the range is a result of how low their downside right. is, right? Like they can really, like you said, 17 and 65 is on the table. I mean, I guess that really just depends on how long Chris Paul and, and Gallo are on the team for, because as long as those guys are there, this team is going to be competent, I think at the very worst. I would feel better about their upside if, if Jeremy Grant was still here. And I feel like they traded Grant in anticipation of trading everybody else. And now I wonder if they don't wish that they could take that deal back because to me, like a front court where like with Grant and Gallo, like you go small ball potentially with like Grant at the five and Gallo at the four, or you go a little bit bigger with Gallo at the three, Grant at the four and Adams at the five. I think you could throw some like really fascinating lineup combinations out there and then you complement your offensive upside with some defensive upside as well because Grant can toggle through four or maybe even five positions and they just don't really have that guy and like the the defensive upside isn't really there to me and I I don't know what's going on with Robertson like is he supposed to play this year is he just done I haven't heard a word about him I don't think anyone knows I don't know maybe that's another wild card element that could change this team's projection but I mean you said it man like between between Paul and Adams and Gallo there's a functional offense there and I think We've seen what Steven Adams can do for a point guard in terms of the space that he carves out with his screens. For Chris Paul, who can maybe even take advantage of those screens in a way that Westbrook couldn't. Like, he's not going to bulldoze his way to the rim the way that Westbrook did, but he's going to be able to hit pull-up jump shots in a way that Westbrook couldn't. And I think a pick-and-roll combination with him and Adams could be devastating, especially with Gallo spotting up around them. And then you have Gallo who also has some ball skills and can ISO a bit and like get himself to the free throw line a ton. Yeah, I think 
as long as those guys are there, like this looks to me like a top 10 offense. And if they can stay afloat at the defensive end, then they can be a part of that Western Conference playoff picture. It's just, I guess, a question of are those guys staying healthy? Because big injury concerns with both Gallo and Chris Paul. Do the Thunder want to keep them around and try and be competitive this year? Or are they going to look to flip them at the first opportunity? Would they prefer to just bottom out? Because they could absolutely bottom the hell out. So yeah, to me, I mean, like their their high end projection is like they could be in the mid to high forties in wins, don't you think? Wow, I, I mean, I wouldn't even go that high. It's no? like low forties, maybe. I think they could be like a forty five win team. the The lack of depth is definitely yeah. really concerning because, like, off of their bench, they have Schroeder and I don't know Hamadou Diallo. I guess Nerlens Noel. Like, yeah. there's not much there. Yeah, I don't know, man. If, if everything clicks, like, why not forty five wins and a low playoff seed? I could see it. Yeah. And then, yeah, like the, the low end projection is like they're the worst team in the league. Literally. So I don't know. And, and that's sort of why I think it's not that interesting to talk about because the downside only really comes about if they decide to trade those guys. So were they, on, were they even on your list? They were oh, on my okay. list, yeah. Okay. But I, I kind of uh, waffled and, and couldn't decide whether I wanted to put them there for the, for the same reasons that you mentioned. I just... I guess it's more interesting to talk about what their upside could be than to talk about what their downside could be. Because their downside is just, yeah, they trade those guys and they sink like a stone. Yeah. Um, who else you got? I think it's on, it's on you. Oh, it's I on know me? where you're going. <laughs> the Indiana Pacers, if Oladipo comes back and has some measure of the explosiveness that we last saw him employing, could be really, really good. You know, third best team in the East kind of good. But... Until he comes back, and we've heard different things. Kevin Pritchard, I think, said December or January. Until then, who's their best player? Like, is it Brogdon? Is it Sabonis? Is it Turner? I mean, there's something to be said for having a bunch of guys who are all good. Yeah, there's also something to be said about, like, if but if it, your best player is a, like, solid starter yeah, and not a star. I don't care how deep you are and how bad the East is. Yeah. You're not good. Exactly. That's my point. So so until he comes back, that's that's sort of their conundrum. They have good balance and they have depth and they have defensive talent, but where is the offense going to come from? You know, who is creating shots? Like, And then if he does come back and he can't give them the sort of off-the-dribble juice that he was giving them before he got injured then I think those same problems are going to persist. And this, to me, doesn't look like much better than a 500 team. But, okay, let's try to figure out, like, on opening day, what's their starting lineup? It's probably Malcolm Brogdon, yep. Jeremy mm-hmm. Lamb, yep. TJ Warren, yep. Sabonis, yep. and Turner. Yeah. That's not, that's not like, holy hell, they're bad. No. But it's like, you know what that is? That's a team, is that- that's, that's a team that's in every game and wins, like, two out of every ten. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're in every game. They scrap two out of every ten. Well, more than that, but you know, I'm being a little. They're dramatic. winning twenty yeah. percent of their games. I'm being a little dramatic, but you get what I'm saying. Like that's a team that will scrap their way to. It's like three minutes left in the fourth quarter, and they're in a one possession game with the Clippers or the Lakers. Yeah. But it's also like two minutes left in the fourth quarter. They can't pull away from the Suns. You right. know, like they just. I think I could see them going in a different direction, where instead of starting Brogdon at point guard, they start like Aaron Holiday. And have Brogdon at the two, Lamb at the three, Sabonis at the four, Turner at the five, and then, and then you have Warren. Warren coming off of the bench, as sort which of might like be a, his best role, a, a microwave guy. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I think that that would be a good role for him. And 
I don't know. I guess that's that's dependent on whether Holiday is actually capable of handling, even if it's just a token starter. Like, can he handle that role? I, I thought he showed some flashes last year, but obviously a ways to go for him in his development. I yeah, like look at that starting five and and then look at their bench. I mean, is that is that team better than the Bulls? Is that team better than? I don't think because I think. Uh, like, I think Otto Porter might be better than anyone on this team. Like, Lowry Markkinen with another year of development might be better than anyone on this team. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty high on Sabonis. I feel like... So am I. Yeah. So, I guess that that is a potential leap that could maybe change everything. And, I mean, like, Turner was fantastic defensively last season. It's just... There's so many holes in his offensive game. Like, he has the stretch, right? He can hit threes. He's got to shoot more of them. Like, too many of his pick and pops last year resulted in long twos. Like, he's got to stretch that out to the three-point line and start, you know, upping the volume of his three-point attempts. But he can obviously knock them down. And as a rim protector is, you know, one of the four or five best guys in the league. So I do think the defense can stay afloat, no problem. Um, Offensively, I have a lot of questions. And, like, can Sabonis really make it work as a four? I feel like it's not even that I don't think he can do it. Like we saw him play a bunch of four with a thunder. I feel like there's a there's a guy in there who can shoot, you know, something like 32, 33% on a decent volume of threes if that's the guy you want him to be. But I just don't think that's the guy you want him to be. And I think he thrived last season by being the opposite of that guy, by playing inside of the arc and by pulverizing guys in the post and setting hard screens and catching the ball on the roll and slinging passes to the corners. Like, I don't know if having him spot up. And I mean, I guess like if he's playing alongside Turner, then Turner is the guy you're using to space the floor. So maybe you can continue to have Sabonis play inside the arc and it won't be an issue. But the sample size of those two guys playing together is pretty definitively. They're great defensively and very poor offensively. (laughs) So we'll see if that changes. I mean, just like looking at the starting five, we were just looking at without Oladipo. What you know, it sounds like it's going to be that lineup rolling out there for at least a couple months, maybe three or four before Oladipo gets back. And then you look at the East, even as bad as it is, there's only three teams I think that lineup is hundred percent better than, and that's Charlotte, the Knicks, and and the Cavs. The so Wizards. I I think a Beal-led bad Wizards <laughs> team is better than a meh deep Pacers team where like Brogdon might be their best player I think the I don't Pacers, agree with that I think the Pacers are better built uh-huh. but I will take a Beal led team over that team who's the second best player on the Wizards <sighs> that's a tough one <laughs> um, it might be Scott Brooks <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but like I, Thomas Bryant I I'm, <clears throat> I, don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I think the Wizards are going to be very bad. I, don't, I, I think that Pacers team is still better. Than okay, what do you play. think? So, like, factor everything in. Oladipo misses maybe three-ish months, a quarter of the season, mm-hmm. comes back relatively healthy, but also not what he was. The team has, like, an average amount of health all year. Take all those things in consideration. What's your East seed range for this team? Best case, worst case. I'm saying 5 to 12. Okay. Um like, I would say if Oladipo comes back healthy, they could be the third best team. But given the time that he's missed, maybe they can't get to the number three seed. So I'll say four to four to ten. Because I don't, even without Oladipo, like, let's say he was just done for the entire season. I, I still think this team is better than the Hawks. The Hawks probably have higher upside, but 
on balance, if I had to pick which team I think is going to be better, I think it's going to be the Pacers just because I, I think the Hawks are going to be disastrous defensively. Yeah. I also think Trey Young and John Collins, based on my expectations for them this year, might be better than anyone on this Pacers team. <laughs> it's possible, for sure. I mean, and that's sort of what this exercise is all about, is, is trying to figure out where that upside lands and where the downside lands. But The Hawks, by the way... If we like stretch this out, what like might make my list? If we go to like seven or eight teams with wide ranging outcomes, like the Hawks are a team that would be on there. I mean, I know a lot of people are high on them. I'm not as high on them, which is why I didn't put them on my list. Like, I, I think that maybe in a best case scenario, they're like an eight seed, but I don't know how much higher than that I, I could see them climbing. So, yeah, four to 10 as a range for the Pacers seems about right to me. I just think there's enough talent here for, for them to be competent no matter what happens with Oladipo. I think uh, we've run through six teams total, and we threw a shout-out <laughs> to the Hawks. Unless you got any other teams you randomly want to hit on. Are there any... I don't. There's a lot of overlap. Yeah, there is. Like, I'm going to throw out three teams. I don't think we have to go deep into them, but okay. if we were to extend this list, three other teams I, besides the Hawks, because I just mentioned them, that I think do have a pretty wide range, and that's the Magic. Okay. The Pelicans. Yep. Actually, it's only two. It's just those two teams. <laughs> the Magic and the Pelicans? Yeah. Do you have any? Um, I guess... Um, maybe, maybe the Celtics, hmm. because Tatum's like a big swing guy to me. Where if he takes that leap that everyone expected him to take last season, then suddenly the Celtics are actually a factor. But I just think the downside is pretty low for them as well because of how mediocre their defense might be, and given the fact that they've been carried by their defense for so long, their offense has really never been much above average if at all you know aside from i think that one season when isaiah thomas just went nuclear if they have a middling offense and like a middling or worse defense maybe they're suddenly scrapping to make the playoffs like i I feel like the downside is maybe lower than people are expecting what do you think the upside of that team is like what's the celtics best case scenario like even if even if kemba is what he was last year and and tatum and or Brown make that jump. Like, mm-hmm. what's the ceiling for that? Second round? I mean, their ceiling to me is kind of similar to what the Raptors' ceiling would be in that you put them in like the 52 to 55 win range. And, and whereas I see the Raptors having huge defensive upside and in the best case scenario, their offense is good enough to make it work. I think for the Celtics, their offense could be really, really good and their defense is just good enough to make it work. Because between, you know, Tatum potentially making a leap, Hayward potentially progressing back to something closer to the form that he was in before he suffered that injury, Brown maybe taking another step with uh, you know a larger role and more opportunity, and Cantor honestly being a really solid offensive player and a guy who, despite what he's going to take off the table defensively, can really get you a lot of points and a lot of second chance opportunities too with his offensive rebounding. So I think there's a lot of uh, offensive upside there. Uh, You know, as long as they can cobble together like a league average or better defense, then yeah, I I see them being a potentially 50-win team and and maybe that third seed. Like we've we've mentioned that third seed in the East so many times already. There's so many different teams I feel like that could slide in and, and grab that. And yeah, the Celtics are one of them to me. And could they make the conference finals? Again, I, I sort of pegged them where I pegged the Raptors in that if they get into a series with one of those two teams, Milwaukee or Philly, I'd put them as like a significant underdog, but give them a slight chance of swinging an upset. I don't give the Celtics that much credit. Like I think 
like the Nets would have a better chance to swing even without Durant of swinging that upset than the Celtics would. Interesting. How come? Kyrie Irving. Okay. Yeah. But Kemba, I, he's not as good as Kyrie, right. but he's a guy who can sort of go off and maybe swing a series just with his individual brilliance. I just feel like playoff Kyrie. I don't know. I. It's one of those things. Like even if I look at the numbers, I, like like I love Kemba. Mm-hmm. But there's something about Kyrie, and I'm not even the biggest Kyrie fan, but it's just, if you're looking at like kind of flawed rosters, but having to carry them, especially offensively in April and May, I, I just feel like Kyrie can do some damage. And I just think the Nets are a little better built. Mm-hmm. Yeah, differently built though. Like they're Very they're loaded in the backcourt, yeah. but like don't really have the wings, yeah. whereas the Celtics have all those wings, but don't have it. I mean, outside of Kemba. Yeah. They don't have a ton going on in the backcourt. I think it's worth mentioning, too, like the fact that we, we, we throw out all these teams as potential three seeds and, like, can they swing the upset? At the end of the day, the reason we do that is because the top two is so set in stone, right? Yeah. And, the, and the rest of the East has so many flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really it's on the Bucks and Sixers. Like, if they stay healthy, there's really no excuse for either of those teams to not be in the East Finals. Yeah, I would be... Very surprised right. if, if those aren't the last two teams standing in the right. East. Um, what what do you think the upside and downside is for the Magic? I think the upside is that three seed. Um, and I think the downside is they missed the playoffs. Like, I mean, I was kind of lamented there summer before where I they locked in this team that I don't think is going to compete for anything of significance anytime soon. Um, but I also understood why they did it. Yeah, I think if they can kind of carry over what they had at the end of last season and in this flawed East, yeah, like they're one of 18 teams, you know, even though there's only 15 in the conference that can compete for that three seed. And yeah, and yeah if they're if that was kind of a mirage and it just doesn't... Because it's, it's hard to find that same, like, whatever it is that they had captured. I understand that there was basketball, you know, sense behind it. Like, they were a great defensive team. But, like... That roster, just talent-wise, there's also a path for them to just not be good enough and not be able to recapture that, right? Like, yeah. Terrence Ross had maybe the best two or three months of his life. Right. And Vucevic. I mean, there's right. a huge potential for regression there. A yeah. guy who, in his age 28 season, without really changing any significant part of his game, just randomly got better exactly. at everything. So, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that that's like a 9 or 10 seed. Mm. I also think, you know, that they have a shot at the 3 seed. Yeah. And I would go back to something we've talked about a few times already, which is that if they trade for a really good point guard, then that changes their outlook considerably. Agreed. So we'll call it there. Uh, Those are your high-variance rankings of 2019-20. Very interested to see what happens with all of these teams and where they land within that spectrum. For now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock.